Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade, here joined in the studio by Mike. Uh, it will be just the two of us recording today as we are going to talk about how to build a universe that doesn't fall apart two days later. Um, this is an essay by Philip K. Dick, a famous science fiction writer. We'll talk a little bit about some of his works um, as we introduce him when we get to it. Uh, this might be more of a springboard than an in-depth analysis of his essay, but uh, it's one of these essays where there's a ton of stuff where you go, that's weird, um, but there's also some insights that maybe are somewhat helpful. Uh, you can find that if you Google it, Philip K. Dick, How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart. It's an essay from 1978. It references a bunch of his works, but I don't think you have to be that familiar with all of his works um, to get a lot out of it. This would have been a good one to try to get Joel Davis for. Um, he was on to talk science fiction in the past. Peter would know that episode, but Peter is not here. Um, but if you look on our uh, webpage and you put in science fiction, that may come up as well. Some of the benefits of science fiction, how it can be helpful. Uh, not to belabor, though, uh, what will come later in the main topic. Why don't we go ahead and mention first, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. If you go to 1517.org, you can find all sorts of good stuff. We've mentioned a few times now there is a new podcast, um, the uh what Christian Almanac, I believe it's called, that Dan Van Voris is doing. But if you go to the 1517 Network, it will pop up. Christian History Almanac is what it's called. I believe it's five minutes. It's daily each morning. I've enjoyed it so far. encourage you to check that out. Um, but there's a number of podcasts that you can check out. Uh, the conference for Here We Still Stand in October is coming up. Um, last I heard, there were still a few um, spots available for that. So you can also look up Here We Still Stand at 1517.org. Um, I will be presenting a sectional. Mike and I will be recording live. We enjoyed ourselves out there last year, and so you uh, may want to check that out if you're in the area or if you're looking for a nice uh, kind of getaway-type place. It's a great location. Um, spend a few extra days, and you can explore uh, San Diego. Um, with that being said, Mike, why don't you go ahead and give us a disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. back with our winging it today we're going to do sports again uh some of you probably are sick of us doing sports but we like sports so we're going to do that and here in milwaukee uh, we had a big victory last night the milwaukee bucks beat the boston celtics the to, take, to take a three to one lead in the conference semifinals. Uh, my hockey team the st louis blues are playing tonight at game seven do you know what uh what my hockey team is doing uh, playing golf. Yeah, they're rebuilding, although uh, you know who our new GM is now, right? Stevie Y. Yep, the captain is back. I'm excited about that. And Ken Holland is gone. He's now gone to the Oilers. Oh, did he really? So he's not even going to be in the organization anymore. <laughs> That's crazy. I appreciate uh, the winning he brought us, but I'm also kind of happy to see a transition. Good. Um, yeah, Detroit was uh, 
quite a juggernaut there for 90s and even into the 2000s. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to discuss, this is kind of a fun time of year in sports, uh, March and April, and even into May where you have uh, baseball starts, you have uh, basketball playoffs, you have hockey playoffs, you got crazy things like the Kentucky Derby or something that's uh, out there, like if you just are bored one day and all of a sudden you see like the lacrosse championship or rowing or something like that, something unique. Handball. Handball, whatever. A video game playing, I've yep. never watched that. E-games. Um, so we decided that our winging it would be like the best playoffs of the sports, something around that. So um, you want to go first or you want me to go? I didn't go first. I'm going to throw up first something we both probably would say is, I'm going to go ahead and, and just acknowledge March Madness as probably being the most exciting as far as the format of a, just a straight-up tournament. And you have like, you know, two, three weeks of just constant basketball um, and uh, the Cinderella making the run. So March Madness, I think, uh, is just high up there no matter what. But I'm going to say, why don't we set that one by the side? Is that fair, Mike? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to have two answers. I would say best playoff as far as like best trophy and like, um, history of it and um, celebration. I'm going to go with the Stanley Cup. I think them skating around the ice with the Stanley Cup and then like you find out they were drinking beer out of it and they dented it and um, long history to it. It's one of them that we know the name of the the trophy for. Um, I'm going to say that that moment, I would go with hockey with the Stanley Cup. Um, as far as favorite playoff run, uh, I'm going to go MLB. I'm going to say baseball and I'm going to say it because I think it's the most tense. Um, some of what people can't stand about baseball is how long a game can take, um, how slowly it can develop. But you get like to the 8th, ninth, 10th inning of playoff baseball. And most of the sports memories I can remember as far as like clutch stuff, um, and not even just my home team, but just in general, um, I think, you know, you get to the ninth inning of a close uh baseball game and especially in the world series where you you just know you only get seven of these games and one bad pitch could be it or one lucky blooper um then i would probably say favorite as far as playoffs to follow um would be baseball well the correct answer is hockey um for the whole for, playoff for, for the whole playoff. See, i think too many teams make the playoffs in that, hockey. That, that's true i would say that but there is i think you would agree there is nothing like playoff hockey I it's mean, a completely it is, different field in the regular tense. season it is fast. It is hard. It's um, there's nothing like it. And uh, college hockey is actually underrated for this too, especially the conference level um, playoffs are really, really intense. And it's surprising because some of the things that maybe a, a, a criticism of hockey is it's very hard to kind of have a comeback or a last second thing, right? Baseball is built into that with last ups and that kind of stuff. And you can see basketball, you know, you don't have to watch basketball until the second half of the fourth quarter kind of thing. Um, but it's amazing that hockey really does come down to some tense moments at the end so often in, in, in playoff. You can get a hot goalie, you can get all sorts of things, and the fans are right on top of you. And so there's nothing like playoff hockey. And I think that's probably if there's one... It's the most exciting game to be at, just in, yeah. in the stadium, for sure. And there's if there's one sport that is so much different than the regular season uh i would i would make a good case that it's going to be hockey even though baseball has a different almost a different set of rules because you you're using your pitchers different you have a you have a lot more uh people on the post season roster and stuff like that 
But for the game itself, I really think hockey just changes as much as any sport. You know, I really like the I like the I like the NFL playoffs, except the Super Bowl. Super yeah. Bowl is very rarely a good game. Well, and I think was, the the thing about the Super Bowl versus baseball or hockey even is it becomes so much more about just general inter- entertainment and not so much the game. I mean, um, you'll have commercials in baseball and hockey, but they're not. Uh, they're not that important. They don't overtake the game. Yeah, and I, I agree with you with baseball probably be my second choice, and the reason for that is is the intensity of that. But what you what you do is you start appreciate all of a sudden you appreciate pitching. Yeah. Right? You appreciate the craft of pitching. Oh, and every, every run becomes pitch, so right? critical. I mean, you're in the middle of August, and you're watching the Detroit Tigers. You know, you're concerned if your pitcher made it into the fifth or sixth inning. Okay, maybe there's some tense moments in a close game, blah, blah, blah. But in the playoffs, you are thinking three days ahead. Yep. Um, you're thinking about three batters ahead. You're There's no about, time for a batter to work yeah. through a slump. It's it's who's yeah. your best bat at each at bat. You're thinking about every pitch, and you just don't have – you can't do that for 162 games. But you can for a playoff run, and that becomes where you kind of fall in love with baseball too. So, I mean, you know, especially baseball and hockey, that's when – the playoffs is when you fall in love with that. Basketball, it's more of a, it's kind of an art, right? It's a personality-driven one, and yeah, the finals are important and they're great and they're fantastic. But you can, I think you can fall in love with the art of basketball at any game, and football's football, right? And I think the frustrating thing with basketball, and I wish Ben were here for this because it drives him nuts, and you see this in March Madness too, is it gets that's the easiest sport of any of them for the officiate uh, the the uh, um, officials to insert mm-hmm. themselves into. You know, so it becomes, I think, the mo- the one most prone to be about this call or that call or whatever else. Although I will say you get like a, a nice back and forth in a game seven of an NBA championship. It's exciting. Um, but I just think hockey and baseball are the most pure, like, this is the game and this is about the game and the game's just going to happen. Yes, an ump can uh, have a different strike zone, but usually that's for both teams all game. Mm-hmm. Um there's just more of it's just happening. Yeah, here's a, here's a question for you. This maybe it could be its own free for all, but um, which fan participation in the four major sports that we've been talking about is the most impactful? Because it's kind of like the home field advantage, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. So, baseball's the one sport that has a home field advantage in the rules, last ups, but also a home field advantage in the actual field you can have a pitcher's park or a a left-handed hitter's park or something like that hockey has a home field or home ice advantage in the rules you get to be the last one that changes football doesn't and basketball doesn't have any rules or the actual field of play is not different but it's basketball that actually that's where the home team wins in the playoffs more often than not and i wonder if it's because it's so personal it yeah. actually there's actually fan participation in the outcome of a game i mean you're trying to get the guy to miss a free throw and i would i would almost say just instinctually i want to say football because like the 12th man the mm-hmm. if you're loud when they're trying to call their plays yeah. momentum wise um yeah football's the one where you may actually affect the game, not just the person. In basketball, the fan can affect the personality or the individual, like you're getting under their skin. Football, you can maybe actually affect the action. It's the only sport where you can do that. Um, Yeah, I would say basketball or football probably for that. I think 
the fan base makes the least difference in baseball. I mean, it's nice to have cheers and that, but it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you know the fun thing with baseball is the ballpark makes such a huge difference. This is always the interesting thing. You look at home run hitters, and you know I just now I look at all these statistics and I go, well, where did they play? Mm-hmm. You know, if someone's playing for the Rockies, the home run's a lot easier than if you're in a, San Diego. Yeah, or you know. It, a complete uh, pitcher's park so well we better not get too far afield but let us know what you think best playoff best championship would be interested and we uh, those of you who can't stand when we talk about sports we will mercifully uh, bring this to an end for you us to our main topic, which is the essay by Philip K. Dick, um, How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later. And it may be a springboard just to kind of some things that opens to up to us to think about um, theologically or uh, even uh, societally, politically. Um, but some of you are familiar with Philip K. Dick, whether or not you realize it or not. Um, a number of his books have been um, adapted to films. I am on that trusted source um, of all sources, Wikipedia, and to name just a few. Uh, Blade Runner would be one that I think is fairly well known, Minority Report, um, Total Recall. And then uh, if you are if you watch anything on like Amazon Prime, a show that I've really enjoyed so far and I've been following is uh, The Man in the High Castle, which is about if um, the Germans and the Japanese had won World War II and then they split up America. And uh, Really interesting show, but you're familiar then with some of his works. He wrote science fiction. He had a hard time kind of breaking into mainstream literature. Um, Not that what he has written hasn't been accepted as such now, but in his life he kind of was always, he had to write for kind of lesser publishing houses, more niche science fiction type stuff. But um, a very interesting guy, very interested in, like many science fiction and dystopian authors, very interested in philosophy, theology, history. And uh, Mike and I were trying to think of something to record on today, and so we were tossing ideas back and forth, and I had remembered this from the past. And so I gave it to him. I didn't give background because I was curious to see what he would say, and, and gladly he didn't say, well, if, that was extremely if, weird. If, <laughs> if, if yeah, I thought it was a joke uh, or not. Because yeah. it is it is a goofy essay. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. And and there's some weird ideas in there where you go, uh, I don't I have no clue what he's saying. Um, but he's kind of getting at, um, as a science fiction author, kind of where is the intersection of fiction and reality? What is reality? Who are people? Um, concepts of, like, media. How do we filter media? How do we tell true from false? Um, how do certain stories resonate across time? So he kind of explores... Um, several instances, and he apparently had instances of this, um, sometimes connected to drugs and sometimes not connected to drugs. Um, Like he literally thought when he talks about that he was also in Rome, like he literally thought he was living two like different lives. One is this guy Thomas in Rome and one today. Um, 
But one of the fun things he gets in there is how some of his stories would then happen. Or he was talking to his Episcopal priest one day and talking about one of his stories. And the priest said, uh, um, that's from the book of Acts. That's Philip and the Ethiopian. And what I found interesting about that is it does get at, um, if you study Judaism, uh, sometimes something you'll hear pop up in Judaism a lot is the idea of God has given the Jews these Old Testament stories to help them with life. And so that these stories are stories that happened in the past, but even more, kind of this view that they are eternal stories in a certain sense. Um, they are recurring stories in history. Um, these are things that we can look to and see our own story to some degree or another in there. Not that any of us are Abraham in the wilderness, but um, there's just some things that recur. And he brings us up in media and in science fiction and in fiction in general. And that's where it was particularly of interest to me because this is something too, uh, um, when Craig Parton came and spoke at WLC a while back and he talked about Bach and kind of the um, kind-hearted, I think, or gentle-hearted apologetics, he called it. Tender-hearted. Tender-hearted and how you can see Christian stories that come up in, in other narratives that aren't even necessarily explicitly Christian but kind of like the power of these stories. Think of redemptive stories, whether or not they're Christological, um, how these things can keep bubbling up. And so I found that especially interesting, as well as the question of, well, what is our reality and how is it shaped? If, if my reality is based on bad facts, or if it's based on false news, or if it's only based uh, on my experience, um, to what extent is my reality Mike's reality? And is Mike's reality the reality of someone who teaches at a Seventh-day Adventist college? And in what way is that person's reality the reality of an atheist in New York City um, or another part of the world? And so maybe, Mike, I can uh, maybe throw out, well, should we just walk through what he's doing here first and then get to... Should that be fine, whatever you want to do. <clears throat> well, um, do you want to do that or you want me to do that? Well, I'll start and then you okay. can kind of take it, right? He, he's very much concerned with, and he admits this, and by the way, it's very, I think, honest, funny, mm -hmm. humble, um, for a guy that probably had a lot of talent, uh, a humble essay. Um, and he wrote a ton, which is partly explains his issue with taking uppers. <laughs> um, and he says, I'm very much interested in two things. One is reality. Like, is my real? can we talk about reality versus realities? Now, before we get into, oh my God, he's a relativist and stuff like that. He's just, he's just saying what we all feel, right? That, um, how do I, how do I know what I am seeing, what I am, uh, what's coming through all my senses, what I think is reality is the same for somebody else. I mean, it's a legitimate question, right? And it's a, and it can be a humbling qu question. And I don't think, I think he has a very different way of getting at. And to what extent is my reality the same as the Roman right. living under, you know, Nero? And, and, and he's going to get a little goofy here, but I don't think he's necessarily trying to be a relativist when it comes to reality. I think he's actually trying very much, very hard to get to something that is, that is actually reality. In fact, and that's he, where it comes out. I mean, and he, he, he really gets to Christ is the logos. Mm -hmm. He sees all reality is tied up in God. Mm -hmm. Right now, he's going to talk about Gnosticism and some different ways mm -hmm. of maybe view. What if the world was just in chaos and then mm -hmm. God came and he's trying to put it together? 
Um, but he does get at some Christological stuff that we wouldn't necessarily agree with everything in. But he is getting at a theme in the New Testament of the Logos as Christ is that which upholds and makes all real. Yeah, and and he doesn't come back to us as much as I wanted to, but he says there's two things I want to deal with. One is, what is reality? That that burning question that's uh, that's bothering him. And the other one is, who is a human being? And I'm putting words into his mouth, but why do we value a human being, uh, right? He has that great story about the guy who goes in for surgery and then he finds out he's an android. <laughs> <laughs> and he asked this, he, he said... Someone asked him, give me a definition of reality, and this is later in his life, um, probably uh, maybe I think a, a decade or 12 years before he died. And he says, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Actually, I thought that was kind of kind of cool uh-huh. um, and and quite profound and really humbling to say, oh, it really isn't just a thing in my mind. It actually is something outside of me. Which is and he put it in God. Yeah, yeah, step one. And then he gets to the point where there's, and, and probably a different way than we would go and get to this point, but the reality being the eternal Lugas. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and from there, um, he is going to start talking about um, some of his science fiction, um, his stories they seem to point to a reality that he didn't know existed. And one of the connections was all of these different kind of connections of stuff that he wrote that then later, that pop up later in his experience when he actually gets around to reading, for instance, the book of Acts, that he never intended that this was going to have the same names like Jason or Felix or this very familiar story of the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Although now, you know what I think happened there is he took a bunch of uppers, read Acts, forgot. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, you know, if he's on a first name basis with his Episcopalian priest, and even though he didn't ever got around listening to the book of Acts, <laughs> you know, there's probably, he probably heard that somewhere, somehow. So I think you can dismiss all of these, what he counts as coincidences. But his major point is that there's a reality be behind everything, which is eventually where you're going to get to the Lugus through either Greek philosophy and then connecting it to John 1, Jesus being the Lugus. Um, but the point is taken very well that there's something that's going on underneath or above, however you want to describe it. And it may come out in us because, okay, I have this yearning for a redemptive story. Well, that is because the reality is that there is a redemptive story and I'm a sinner and I need that. Or maybe it is a little bit more sci-fi or mystical, like he's saying, that there is these things that are kind of, there's, there's one grand story and this gets played out over and over again in these little stories. Um, and that's what you were alluding to when you, got, when you talked about that Jewish idea that, that it's story and that this kind of gets played out more and more. So again, I'm not Abraham, but I may be in a situation where this Abraham, a story from Abraham's life literally gets played out in my life. Yeah. And for him, it was a coincidence to say, this too many coincidences for him just to ignore it to say okay there's something else and and maybe we'll uh, later in our episode here we'll get to the idea maybe coming a little bit more down to earth but the idea of true myth the power of of myth and christians shouldn't be afraid of because they once were historically afraid of myths or in a modern um contemporary way of saying it's science fiction those are 
different, obviously, but you know, you, you want your kid to be reading math and history and learning Latin and reading the Bible and not sci-fi because that's going to corrupt them. Well, hold on a little bit yeah. here. Some of the best myth tells us something about humanity and um, those, play, those things that get played out, like a redemptive story, a, a hero, uh, a knight in shining army. Um, Order asserted amidst chaos. Yeah, all of these kinds of things are, are, are stepping stones for them to relate their life and their contemporary world to the meta-narrative par excellence, which is the scripture and not really a meta-narrative, but actually reality. So... Yeah, and I think um, one of the things he does somewhat early on, and he takes it various. This is not like a clear linear essay by any means. Um, he kind of stopped around. underlining things after the. <laughs> yeah, and you, and there's a lot of places where you go, okay, now develop that thought, and he kind of develops it, but not in like what he set up, what you expected from that. But one of the things he gets at is science fiction authors who write stuff and then later find out it's true, and. What he meant by that wasn't necessarily that, like, androids are going to take over the earth in truth or that, like, there's aliens that are, you know, keeping humans in zoos as truth. Um, well, maybe. Right. They could be. Know. But uh, But what he means is that there's things in, in writing their science fiction, they explored things that are in and of themselves very true. So they write this and then they find out. I was, and think of, this is why people are so drawn to dystopian fiction. This is why people on the left and the right now will both go to 1984 mm -hmm. um, to explain things by Orwell, is uh, through these things, we, we can find, um, without even intending it, that these stories that we're drawn to, or maybe even these stories that we create, um, have in them kernels of truth about people or about God, or about society, or about sin, or about redemption, or about chaos and order, or about human nature. And I found that to be really interesting. Um, and and it's not just C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Right. Who had an obvious, explicit Christian agenda, yeah. And um, to, I think that has to be an interesting experience for an author to go back to their own works, and, and not in a way like Peter says the prophets examine their own work to see the, the times when these would happen, but to go back and find, uh, yeah, they actually wrote this story, whether they realized it or not, because there was something true. They had their finger on something. Um, the second kind of fun thing he gets at in there is the nature of reality. Now, when he talks about Disneyland, and he says he lives right by Disneyland. So Disneyland is real, right, in the sense that I can go to Disneyland. But Disneyland, most of us wouldn't say, like, Disneyland is authentic, mm -hmm. right, that it's... Um, that's not the world as we know it. You wouldn't go there on vacation if that was just the world as we know it. And so he has this great thing in there about how he would like to have fake, fake birds in Disneyland. So I can't remember what ride he's talking about, but they have like the automated birds or whatever that, you know, chirp whatever. And he's like, imagine if someone replaced them with real birds, which would really be fake, fake birds. <laughs> um, and what he's getting in that is that like even those fake birds um, – they're pointing to a reality of birds, right? But if you had the real birds, they'd still be fake, fake birds. Um, and he, he connects that to the media um, and, you know, and especially television. And he says one of the things that he finds dangerous about television is that we start to shut down our brains and it just becomes um, image heavy um, and uh, somewhat uncritical. Um, but he gets at, you know, even through there, he... 
he kind of praises children. He says even children with their great imagination can watch television and even some things that are themes that are beyond their age. I don't mean like inappropriate, but they can't process. I mean, a child watching Lord of the Rings is different than a grown person watching Lord of the Rings. Um, and it doesn't even have to it could be Simpsons. There's two levels of Simpsons. There's two levels of everything. Yeah, but he gets at there's something even that that child has that that child to a certain extent is able to distinguish like reality real from the realness of that thing. And he that's where he kind of sees hope for humanity, it seems like, is that um, we are able to come back to, even in these things that we know aren't real, we're able to find some reality, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm saying that well, Mike. And I think that's something, as we've been exploring in the podcast, um, Peter and I did with the Stepping Outside the Fortress um, episode, I think that was two. Um, Mike and Peter and I did with the Law and Gospel as Lens. Um, we talked about this a little bit last time with Wallace, um, with this and wa- is water, is I think that is something for us helpful for us as Christians to keep in mind too, is that even through these these stories that maybe are not explicitly Christian stories, we can sometimes through through the not real um, grow in our appreciation for the real or recognize real bubbling up, and I think that's important for us a because that can help us grow deeper into the stories of the scriptures. Um, to understand these stories, as I mentioned, um, stories that are still speaking to us. They're stories that it's not just history class where this happened, but they're stories that these stories are still happening. They still have value today. Um, But I think also that they present contact points. When you have people wringing their hands and they're so worried about the culture and um, people just don't care about Christianity anymore, I think it's interesting to look at, well, what are they watching? What are they reading? And a lot of what is in there is still contact points with Christianity and themes that Christianity addresses. And so I think that's an opening. And I think um, someone like in our circles, if I'm not mistaken, like a Luke Thompson has done work with this. Um, I think this is, you you see people who are, um, I haven't seen any of these movies, and I'm not bashing them. Some people gave me grief because I couldn't remember the name of, uh, what's the superhero movie that I was going to watch up? But Abigail Avengers seen it or twice. something. Avengers. It's like a whole series, I think. End times. Whatever. Something. Anyways, I'm not poking fun at it, but there's a lot of people I know, a lot of pastors who are really into this, and part of the reason they dig it is because there's a lot of themes in there that have resonance with themes from the scriptures. Now, I don't know any of the pastors who think there's really someone who has like, doesn't one of the guys have like claws come out of his fingers or something, um, and. Uh, I don't know all Wolverine, their Wolverine, maybe. I don't know all their powers, but they've got powers. But there's something to that, and I thought that that Dick, in a very kind of a disorganized and nonlinear way, brought out. Yeah, I would love to have somebody who's an expert on this kind of uh, just literature in general, but also medium. Say, I think we would all look back at some of these, even some of the dystopia stuff of um, the the. Uh, early half of our last century was still asking very pointed questions, human questions. What is a human being? What's the value of a human being? Is there reality? And, and is that really still the same in Game of Thrones or whatever is new? I, I'd love to have somebody who's an expert in that kind of stuff talk about that. Um, I'd like to read a little bit of what he... This guy loves his blower across the yeah. I'm going to close this window, Mike, because he... Uh... Apparently, he's going to blow all of Wauwatosa with his uh, little backpack blower over there. <laughs> he must be getting paid by the hour. All yeah. right. So, um, 
I'd like to read a little bit from his essay here, which connects the idea of human value, but also the idea of the power of the televisions, especially, but all really media at all, uh, overall. And he says, I do not trust, I don't, I do not distrust their motives. And he's talking about people who are creating pseudo realities and <clears throat> that's okay. Um, I'll sit tell my worship class, uh, warn them about the manipulation that happens in church services and uh, denominations that assume a free will, right? So I have to sell Jesus. I have to get somebody to a decision, but I'll say... Which really leads to some bad art sometimes, yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> terrible art, but, and some really bad preaching. But I'll say manipulation's good. You want to be manipulated. If you go to uh, um, uh, a movie, uh, a dramatic movie, you want to be manipulated by the music. You want to be manipulated by the story. You know it's happening. And so uh, when I think about... Because something's resonating with yeah, you. Yeah, and, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And so in a similar way, but not exact, he's saying, I do not distrust their motives. These people who are creating pseudo-realities that are manufactured by very, very sophisticated people. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it. And it is an astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. And he says, I don't know, because that's what I do for a living, literally writing these novels, these sci-fi no novels. And that's where he gets to the title of his essay. And I have to build them in such a way that they do not fall apart two days later. So how does he then build a pseudo-reality, a world that's not going to fall apart, even though he's clearly saying something that is not actual real. And that's where he's eventually going to get to the idea that there is a reality that's uh, beneath, beneath all of this, right? And that he was dragged into, or that it came upon him, not that he was searching for. In fact, he says, I kept searching and didn't really find a good answer of what is reality. And this is where I think he connects it a little bit, although I wish he went back to this, is the idea of that there's a human element here. What I am saying is that objects, customs, habits, and ways of life um, must perish so that the authentic human being can live. And it is the authentic human being who matters most, the viable, elastic organism which can bounce back, absorb, and deal with the new. And so, uh, first of all, I think, you know, television versus media uh, versus print would be one of, one of the ways that I think if you, if you put him up into a, gets a corner, he would say uh, television does kind of rot our brain a little bit. Not that he's, a, not that he's against that, that medium um, always. Um, but that you're able to think, that you are able to change, that you're able to see uh, somebody else's reality or this world that was created for you by somebody else to manipulate you. You see it for what it is, but you also can learn from it. You can uh, go a little bit deeper and you can see it's not, you can see through the customs. You can see through um, the habits, the ways of life that, uh, that are all around you. And you can look into a reality maybe perhaps that we all share. We're getting in dangerous words here, but a reality that we can all share, which we theologically would say, fallen, bound will, um, are made for freedom, have some rationality, but, it's corru uh, but, but our sinfulness uh, corrupts it, 
um, a, a need for a savior, Emotional a need for beings. purpose, all of these kinds of things where you fight through the customs to something that you share. And I think this happens probably, you know, I hate to admit it because I am not a sci-fi person and neither are you, Wade, but that... Although I am in a dystopian yeah, stuff. Yeah, I am too. And this is something that does go across gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, better than a lot of things, yeah. even better than a, sports. I, I you think know, what it I, does a good job with too is our fears are more common across those mm -hmm. boundaries than we realize too. Yeah, I mean, I, and I tease my, my two of my daughters, not my middle daughter, but my oldest and my youngest, are into this kind of stuff. The Avengers stuff, not necessarily deep sci-fi stuff, but the superhero. And my oldest daughter um, is old enough also to read a little dystopia and stuff like that. And the friends that she shares this with, she literally has nothing in common other than, and this is, I'm, she's my daughter and I'm a dad, and so I can say this, but their nerdiness, yeah. right? I mean, there's like this, there's something that's shared that I can't, I see it, but I don't know it because I don't have that connection with them. Like you start talking to me about superheroes, I'm out. I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to do that. But she has this connection. And then they feel the same way when we talk about sports. Right. She has this connection with people of other ethnicities, other backgrounds, other uh, denominations, maybe even religions. That That is amazing. And what's neat about that is that these are, if it's good sci-fi and a good author, and this is why we should get somebody on to say is the new sci-fi as as well as the the old as good as the old sci-fi of doing this but there's common themes that we all have and I, you can't help but think about you know augustine's famous quote right that i i'm not going to find rest until i find rest in thee these are some of the human questions that um that uh these people are dealing with even in a crazy sci-fi kind of kind of way yeah, and I think, you know, just to unpack a little bit more, like I, I meant with the dystopian, there's something I think extremely interesting in seeing the fears that resonate across boundaries with especially dystopian type sci-fi. Um, at the end of the day, what we fear is perhaps the best indicator about what we believe, and I think this comes up in the catechism in a big way. Um, in fact, I have a friend who loves to say, um, if you want to find out what someone's idol is, follow their fears. Um but that also, right, the fear is a, res is a result of the fall, um, and it says something about our, uh, I mean, that we're afraid of losing freedom, that we're afraid of losing choice, that we're afraid of losing order or stability, that we're afraid of losing um, family, uh, that we're afraid of losing identity. Even in our own culture, which has changed dramatically in the last 50 years, it's hard to believe now, 1969 is 50 years ago now, mm -hmm. right? We think of that as being a big, 68, 69 being big watersheds in American history. And and European history, too. Yeah. yeah. and um, But in the end, the, the core fears haven't really changed. Um, it's just how people have tried to address them. Um, maybe if we, as we wrap it up, Mike, if you can just talk a little bit what you meant earlier about true myth so you can explain that to people. Yeah, so I... In to put it into his kind of essay here, you know, he makes the point that fake realities will fake will create fake humans, and he's not talking necessarily about. That's a great line, by the way. Yeah, no, he's not talking about like I created this. Like, well, his example later was 
you know, the person who is getting the person who thought he was a person and then they, 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 uh, do a surgery on him and it turns out that he's an Android and he has just like this computer inside of him or whatever. Um, he's not talking about a sci-fi person creating another race that lives on a different planet kind of thing here. I, I think his warning is the power of, of media, even though he's not bashing the media here, but the power of media to, define what a human being is yeah and i think to use a word that peter has used a few times in the last few episodes and which goes back to existentialism as well but i think also to christianity and you look at someone like a kierkegaard this is what he's gonna that um fake realities create inauthentic people Mm -hmm. um and that and so that there is something to every human has value because they're a human being but there are ways in which we can become less authentically human right we even use a term like someone acted inhumanely. Mm-hmm. Well, that's saying something about what a human being is if we say they're inhumane. Um, so yeah, I think that is an interesting connection point. Yeah, and and he he brings up the word authenticity quite a few, and yeah. that really is something that we in the confessional Lutheran world, when we attack postmodernism, and rightfully so with the language games, it's rightfully so, and there's a lot of bad stuff in there, but postmodernism is such and a And he's big... bringing out in here, too, words have power. Yeah, yeah. and and his point, that, that authenticity is a major component of, I think, if not postmodernism, if there isn't even such a thing as an ism there, but maybe our postmodern world, our contemporary world, where authenticity is a big deal. You see this in clothes, you see this in food, you see this in baseball stadiums, you see this in how we decorate our houses. You, There's a yearning coming out of modernity, a uh, plastic world, there's a yearning for authenticity. And it's not just that we want to be organic to save the planet. I think there's some philosophy that's going on behind there too. Those two things go, go hand in hand. And so a couple of things that uh, he touches on then is, uh, well, first let's take the idea of the manipulation of words. The basic tool for the manipulation of reality is the manipulation of words. He's getting very close to, okay, Jesus is the word, the Logos, right? Right. And and his... Or even the Tower of Babel. The power of words is not just sticks and stones may break my, you know, that kind of the, the power of the power of the pen or how we evaluate the word versus whatever. Um, uh, it, it is the reality, right? And that's where he does bring in Orwell here too, that whoever controls the words controls people. And this is, if we want to get to, I mean, at, at its core, Christianity is a word religion. Um, in the promissio, we, we, our whole faith is rooted in words, um, he's not necessarily making an explicitly Christian point, but it is a very powerful point. Yeah, and we don't want to go so—I don't want to go so far as to say, okay, word is everything, like word equals reality, because, you know, this piece of paper is not word. Right. Um, but, and we're not naming and claiming health right. and, you know, it. But word, faith, theology like Osteen. For lack of a better way of explaining it, we are people of words. Uh, we were created by words. This place was created by words. We relate to each other with words. We relate to each other with words. Uh, you know, if you come up to me and say, oh, but I dream in color. Well, that's fine, but how are you going to tell me about it, yeah. right? And and then the creative power of the word. Um, we just, in, in worship today, we're going through the baptismal rite, and I, I just stopped and said, okay, let's start with all the stories of water in the Bible <laughs> and word. And and the the creative power of word in the beginning with the spirit and water that 
it creates something out of nothing. And then the creative power of the baptismal word that creates a Christian out of nothing that is of, that, of value. And so words really have power. And, if, and, and the postmodern know that. They know that, and so if they're going... And they will admit the correlation between language and power. I mean, that's the reason they want to deconstruct right. language, and so to deconstruct power. Whatever their motive is, if they want to deconstruct power, if they want to deconstruct the the Christian culture that they see... That or the is, dominant or Europe, culture, whatever, or whatever it it's going to be, you're going to attack the meanings of words. You're going to say, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a death... It's an abortion. It's not a human being. It's a fetus. And, and, I mean, um, and a, conservatives are going to do that all over the place, There's an implicit too. recognition in there. And this is where, I mean, I am a fan of a lot of what postmodernity will do. Um, but, this, I mean, the postmoderns recognize words have an ability both to, uh, um, to take captive but also to set free, right? They mm -hmm. can oppress or they can liberate. And that I think there is something very Christian to that. Absolutely. And, and so he gets to this point where he's saying, okay, I'm using these words, and I'm putting words in his mouth, um, and I'm in this area of creating realities here, and as I'm writing, I don't even know what's true or not, right? So there's some, there's some truth beyond it, and I, don't, I have to look back and say, was that actually true, or was it something that I just made up? Now, it's both. It can be both, that he made it up, but it still has a ring of truth to it. And what's fascinating to me is he doesn't get to decide right. what that truth is. The truth is outside of him, and it seems wishy-washy, but it's actually quite profound that the truth is the logos. The truth is something that's outside of me, and, and I'm just trying to figure it out. And when I stumble upon it, it actually was a gift. Right. It was a spirit, and so, and we're we're giving him the benefit of the doubt here. But well, I like said, this. We said with Wallace too, um, in good postmodern fashion, when we do these essays, we view the author as no longer owning the text once he's created it. It's, <laughs> it's completely ours. ours. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. We can do what we want with it. Uh, we're just, I prefer to say that we're following the eighth commandment and we're giving them the, the benefit yeah. of the doubt. But he has a great the line. Benefit of the doubt that they agree with us. <laughs> we have. This is a great line. We have fiction mimicking truth and truth mimicking fiction. We have a dangerous overlap, a dangerous blur. And so he's not all rose petals here. I mean, he sees some problems here, um, but uh, I think in the end, some very Christian themes and uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, spirit heavy is not the right w way to think about it, but that the spirit gave him this. It's uh, just almost and he a does little, say the spirit did. Yeah, show. almost a little bit Gnostic, like he's given this special And knowledge. he also says he is yeah, kind of Gnostic. He, he, he's, he's been accused of that. He's attracted to that idea. And so, uh, you know, th there are some pump your brakes moments in this essay. And, and clearly he's off the rails on a couple of these things. But yeah. uh, just, again, an interesting, an interesting essay. And yeah, and maybe kind of as we close it out, I would just say one of the, the big things that struck me is something, Mike, that I know that you do bring out of worship class, as you've said, and I know I've had students talk to me about that you brought it out too, is that idea of um, there is a value. Um, we want to connect not just rationally but emotionally to things that are true and, uh, and that we have a God who's good enough that even, you know, when, when you look at like um, non-Christian ancient Near East religious texts, 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that's in there that's like bad. Like don't sacrifice your kids to, to Moloch. Nope. Um, but there's also a lot in there that you go, someone was trying to sit down and write a story that explained who we are, what the world means, and what makes it go, what makes mm -hmm. it be. And I think what Dick is good at in this is to be able to say, yeah, that's because there's something behind the true, right? Mm -hmm. There's, we can get glimpses of it. And, uh, and so I, to me, it was kind of a fascinating read. And it really, from a Christian sense, it is what I do when, when, when I was in the parish, when someone comes into my office and they're going through something and I say, you know what, let's look at Genesis. Mm -hmm. Well, why do I want to look at a story in Genesis? Because I'm recognizing this person isn't necessarily, this person doesn't necessarily have two wives that are arguing with each other, right? Or, you know, I'm trying to pick some of the Genesis mm -hmm. accounts that probably are not everyday situations. You weren't, you weren't sold into slavery by your brothers. Right. But there's something about human beings there. And there we would say divinely, um, infallibly revealed about human beings there um, that makes stories such a powerful thing. And I think that's also why, as a pastor, I usually enjoyed preaching on the Gospels more than on the Epistles. I think that's why Jesus took the approach he so often took in the Gospels of um, rather than just saying, okay, I'm going to write down on the chalkboard the five points, remember, he tells a story, he tells a parable, um, that we're people that um, want story and we resonate it. And Dick is kind of saying um, how great it is when the story turns out to be true. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily turns out to be true in all its details. You know, there's probably not a guy who's really an android Although if there is, it's probably like in Silicon Valley, you know, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg built it or something. Um, but that there's something about that that I'm drawn to for good reason. I think of Westerns, and I'm, I can't uh, claim to be a, a, a great expert on Westerns, but I think I like the movie Tombstone. Um, well, why do I like the movie Tombstone? Uh, because there's just so many, like, mm -hmm. true theme. Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday being friends and loyal and... Um, being willing to sacrifice for family or for others, um, right? And flawed people, deeply and, flawed Yeah, people. and by no means, yeah, I mean, Doc Holliday is the best for that. Um, but it, by no means am I saying like, oh, that's canonical. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying like, they get something about mm -hmm. people in the world. And so I, I find it a fascinating essay for that. Um, we'll have to get Joel Davis back on, um, maybe Ned Farley. I know he's into this stuff too um, in anthropology. On, uh, on science fiction. But it, it was an interesting essay to me because it deals with some stuff I'm familiar with, some stuff I'm not. I'm, I don't know all of Dick's writings, although, as I said, I'm familiar with some of them. I really do enjoy that uh, Man in the High Castle series. I think it's really good. Um, very well done. But uh, but that kind of fun for us to think about as Christians is that um, how powerful... <laughs> There's something to seeing core stories and themes... Um, of our divinely revealed scriptures, finding their way without an author even meaning it mm -hmm. um, into other grand stories, yeah. you know, that, that really can shape things. Um, and uh, and to be able to say, what is this? What does this resonate with me about? What does it tell me about people? Um, where are some of the contact points that are that are still there? I mean, it is interesting that at a time when um, culturally and probably demographically Christianity is in decline at the West. Although I 
I think just kind of a superficial facade is being pulled away mm-hmm. in many instances. But um, that we're also probably like more interested in superheroes than ever mm-hmm. before. You know, um, there's a lot. Why of, is that? There's a lot of postmodern things about uh, acutely aware of suffering. Um, uh, a revival of uh, talking about historical concepts. There's a lot of identity, freedom, all of those things that that we kind of ignored maybe in the Christian church because we were so involved in the culture, which you know we can blame previous generations, but we do the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just the and you way mentioned it is. Tolkien and Lewis, and I think it goes back to you know one of Tolkien's criticisms of Lewis was Lewis was too explicitly Christian in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Now it's hard to to do much with Tolkien and not say. It's pretty explicit there, too. But that's because we're going into it looking for the mm-hmm. Christian themes. Um, but I think Dick is onto something that Tolkien was trying to get after. Of, like, you don't have to be explicit for it to be, at its core, um, something that resonates with Christian themes. Which is a, a lesson for us. You don't, have to, you don't have to take rock and roll and make it Christian. Right. It can be rock and roll for itself and has value in itself. And it can have rock and roll that happens to have Christian themes instead of uh, Christianity superimposed over over rock and roll. I have an apologetic question that I don't know there's an answer to, but this is something that's interesting, and, and um, maybe it is a question for our anthropologist on campus, but um, chicken or egg kind of thing. Are these stories that keep coming up in all over different cultures um, where maybe there isn't even strong evidence of cultural borrowing does it does it point to the idea that there's a natural um desire for salvation a desire an idea of sacrifice even human sacrifice um a flood story that kind of stuff or can it all be explained by cultural borrowing either way um there's a remarkable consistency of themes across all cultures and, and even tribes. if it is cultural borrowing why did they borrow it why right. did they like it so these are questions as from a christian point of view we're like well see noah said it, said that yeah. and it went down and it got diluted and i think that's probably some true even if we don't have archaeological evidence of that but you're right even if there's cultural borrowing why did it resonate with the ancient babylonians and there's nothing wrong with genesis saying okay um, these are the stories going around out there. We got a story that's similar, but it's actually, rea- you know, you're thinking about it in a Genesis different way. Which is what Genesis 1 through 3 do, yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And it's an interesting apologetic question of, of the nature of the Bible and its truth, too. So a lot going on there. All right, well, Mike, uh, we should probably wrap it up. We don't want to go too long, but uh, I guess whether it be science fiction or any fiction or media in general, um, as we go in, I equipped with the promises of God and the great stories of Scripture. Um, we can look to appreciate them, and in the end, huh? What can we probably do, Mike? Let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get in my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tanker. I set them up another round. I set them up. Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.
I don't care what 